Thank you very much, guys. Um, and the power of worshiping with God and worshiping Him and learning the truth of who He is through song. There's just nothing like it. Um, I want to give you a quick update on our uh, capital campaign. And then uh, next week, I'm going to talk a little more about it. But first, I need to ask, how many of you have ever uh, built a house? You see a show of hands of people who have built a house. I just want to know who's going to feel this pain. Um, you know how you decide, we want to build a house, and, and you go to the architect, and they go, well, how big do you want to make it? And you go, well, I don't, I don't know how much I can afford. Like, I, I think about like this, but I don't know. I don't know if I can afford that. And so you go to the bank and go, how much can I afford? And the bank says, well, bring us drawings, Right. And you're like, well, I can't, I can't get the drawings until I know how much money you're going to give me to, because I can't have a house design. That's kind of like any construction, as in, including at a capital campaign at a church. So, so we've got a good, okay, we know what we're going to need. Here's some ideas for how we're going to do it. We have a good sense. I know there are still many in the church who are saying, we, we intend to pledge. We want to pledge as well. About 240 uh, families already have, which is fantastic. Um, we're about 70, 80% of the way pledged towards our complete goal that we would have. Again, fantastic. Um, and so that gives us a hint as to where we're going. It's a way that we can kind of communicate with each other. And those who are saying, I'm waiting to see drawings. I want to see a plan before I pledge. I get that. That's not a problem. Um, and so, uh, so we're, we're on that step and the next step. So you will know now that we have a good sense um, a general sense of kind of what financially we're looking at, then we can start pulling in. And Paul's going to be meeting with, uh, he has about five meetings scheduled with architects and engineers to look at our property and say, okay, we know the solutions you're trying to reach. And we think here are some options for the best ways to achieve those given our property. And so, um, so we'll be keeping you updated, especially after those meetings, we'll come back probably then we'll show up with uh, some more specific drawings and designs and where those are going to be, um, that kind of stuff. So um, for those who are waiting on that, you can. You don't have to wait. You can, uh, you can jump on board. Next week, I'm going to be talking philosophically. As I'm about to mention, we're about to start laying the foundation of a passage that is very key to my ministry. For about the last 17 years, um, this passage, um, there's a, a part of 1 Samuel 13 and an aspect of it that has really um, undergirded what I believe and the way I believe ministry works and ought to work, especially in the church. I have never gotten to preach it um, like this systematically from a pulpit. And so I am super pumped next week to be able to do that and to lay those foundations. And I will, I will integrate some of that talk about the capital campaign and why we're doing it into that. Um, but but the, the main key um, is this passage that I'm, I'm so excited to teach. Now, also... Um, I need to let you know um, that, that a few days ago, our, our Royal Family Kids Camp, which most of you know about, we talk about several times a year. It's a, it's a five-day camp for foster kids, and so um, we're excited that we get to do that every year, and this year it's going to be at the beginning, in the beginning of June. Um, but we had a male counselor have to back out at kind of here at the last minute. And so we've had a couple of people reach out in the first service, but I need some more names. And in fact, truth is, if we had more people, we may be able to get more kids um, typically, um, counselors, they're called cousins in Royal Family Kids Camp, is the only thing that limits how many kids we can bring um, to the, into, the, um, into this camp. But it, it's 24 hours for a day, for five days, um, and it requires some training on May 21st. But men, if there are any of you who could say, I could take those five days off, I could do this, it is a life-changing experience. It'll be one of the hardest things you've done, and also one of the most, most miraculous things you've ever experienced. Um, so I'd love to challenge you. So if you're between college semesters, if, you're, if you've got at least a year of college under your belt, 
um, or you're older um, than that, you can, you can sign up for this and be a part of this, and we'd love for you to do that. So if that's you, men, if that's you, you can step up because we had one back out, which means that at least two young men may be told you can't come to camp, um, and that would be a tragedy. Um, I, I would love for us to have four guys step up so we could add not only those keep those two going, but six new ones maybe um, could come as well. So please come find me after church or one of our staff members and let them know um, I'm in for that, and Paul will remind you at the end of the service to do that. Okay, good. Um, uh, okay, so jumping in to our passage, I want to wrap up a theme that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And I, I want to do this because we're going to see this theme. And in my mind, it's a really heartbreaking theme. I mean, we're going to see it show back up, and every time it does, it's painful, um, I think. So I'm going to read this, 1 Samuel 12, starting in verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your service to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask ourselves, ask for ourselves a king. I'm going to come back to what is so key in that passage in a second. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, if you've read Mere Christianity or The Problem of Pain or, or many of his other books, he references a concept that I think is interesting to us, um, and it's interesting to me for sure, that he says, those who try to follow Christ... Without Christ, get angry. Those who seek to live the Christian life without Christ, over time, it just makes you mad. It kind of reminds me of something else he said. He talked about the fact that those who say, I'm a sinner, I, I, I have evil and wickedness in me. The people who just say that typically are irritated and frustrated with the gospel. It feels, it feels awful to them. The idea of God's wrath just feels awful. But those of us who know that we are sinners and that there is wickedness in us, we hear the gospel and are stunned in its generosity. A very different response to the very same message. If you find that regularly anger is a response in your life, and you go, man, I'm trying so hard, and yet I still get so angry. It may be that you're trying to follow Christ without Christ. And it'd be great to be set free of that. It's exhausting. In fact, I want to show you something that's really intriguing to me. Um, this is a piece of art uh, that was released in the Guggenheim in 2016. The robotic arm is programmed to take action anytime the hydraulic fluid, which is necessary for it to operate spreads too far. The title of the piece is Can't Help Myself uh, by Sun Un. Now, as I understand it, reading what the author wrote about, the, what the creator, the artist wrote about, is it, is it his intention was to show that the arm cannot help to do but what it's programmed to do. But no one else but him seems to have that emotional response to this piece of art. Everybody else sits and looks at it as it seeks to try to hold its own lifeblood in. As though it is working more and more. Everybody else seems to connect with the fact that it is endlessly trying to seek to hold its own existence together desperately. It cannot ever stop pulling the hydraulic fluid back to itself or it will grind to a halt. You work harder and harder and harder, and you have less to show for it. This is, this is trying to follow Christ without 
Christ. It's exhausting. It never is ending. There's no rest in it. There's, there's, no, there's no improvement in that. I think it's part of why the number one age and gender risk for suicide is men over 65. is because they think, they think, I've worked and I've worked and I've worked and I've toiled and I feel like I have so little to show for it. I have, I've done all this in an effort to save myself, to give my life purpose and meaning, and it's failed. As old Zig Ziglar used to say, they get to the top of the ladder and they realize it's been leaning against the wrong building. This, is the, this, this triggered this question in me. What is not a savior? If we start making a list of all the things in our lives that aren't our savior, there's some obvious ones. Money, uh, career, sports, school. Those are not saviors. They cannot save us. But maybe we forget to think, what is not our savior? I'm not your savior. You're not your savior. My efforts are not saving. Therapy is not my savior. America is not my savior. My friends, my community do not replace my savior. My marriage, my family, my church, these are not our saviors. These are intended to be good gifts from our savior, but they don't replace our savior. That's different. If our efforts are meant to create our own salvation in any way, we will never be able to rest. And in fact, we better not. Instead, if he has already done that work, then we can rest in him. Delight in him. Talking this week with my friend about the word delight. The Hebrew word there, really, the root of it is the word soft, like a pillow. We are supposed to fall back Resting, delighting in his goodness, in the soft embrace of his grace. That's what he intends for us. Now, where does this come from in this passage? Pray for your servants to the Lord your God. Every time I see that, it makes my heart clench when someone says to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God. Now, if it's a non-believer... That would make sense. If a non-believer came forward and said, my life is falling apart, I have nothing, would you please pray to the Lord your God for me? I would love that. That would be one thing, be fine. But the thought of someone who claims to be a Christ follower coming and saying, would you please, please pray to the Lord your God? That's that, that's that weird sense of like, I mean, don't you mean the Lord our God? As we just sang? That's what that's really all about. So I would tell you, here's my summary. Church, make sure that God is your God. Not just your parents' God. Not just your country's God. Not just your church's God. Your God. That you know Him. If you don't, we'd love to pray with you about it. Any of us. There's probably about 500 people in the room who would love nothing more than to pray with you about that very question. So just to wrap up 12 and move into 13. Chapter 12, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack here. Um, but the one that struck me most that I wanted to share with you was this. I have found that sometimes it's hard to like people who I'm not happy with. Anybody ever, else ever run into that? 
It's like when people are making my life hard, sometimes it's hard to like them. Here's what I've discovered. I can pray for people I don't like. I can pray for people I'm not happy with. I can pray for people who are making my life hard. That's, that doesn't, maybe that shouldn't be some big insight, but I think it actually is. So a few years ago, when I went through a, a tumultuous kind of time and se- with several relationships, several friends, um, and at about the same time, a friend who knew I was going through it gave me a prayer bracelet, a group of beads. We're Baptists, so it, it was not a um, rosary. Thank you. It was not a rosary. It was just a prayer, a set of prayer beads. Not a, just kidding. Um, it was, so it was a, a bracelet that had this beads that, that and had five big beads on it and little beads. And I would pray for the, the bracelet would remind me to pray for the person and then pray for four things and then pray for the next person and pray for the four things and pray around that. And what I discovered was amazing. One, even though my life was being made more difficult, I could pray for them. And then I found I was being set free of all the nerves and anxiety and difficulties that I experience when a relationship is not right. When a relationship, we talked about that a few weeks ago, when a relationship's not right, I stress over that. And this was huge because I couldn't fix this, but I could pray. And I discovered that the power of that is powerful. Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Um, It is my desire that I would never cease to pray for you, the church. And that I hope you would never cease to pray for one another. We are all the priesthood of believers, and we need to be praying for one another and for our church and for the church. So, God forbid, I love that Samuel acknowledges this or recognizes this as a sin against the Lord to stop praying. That's a, that's a real challenge to the ADD kid in me, right? Who's like, gets so easily distracted, and I need to be reminded it can be sin to fail to pray. So today we'll start unpacking the rest of this, the rest of this passage and moving into chapter 13. I'm excited to do so because I can't, excited to jump into what's next week as well. So starting in verse 13, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Starting in verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard that it was said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel... 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, I said, 
Well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba and Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp and the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, the land of Shuel. Another company turned towards Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattock, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. And so on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The very words of God. Pray with me that God will guide us through this. Father, as we unpack this chapter, which was written a long time ago about a people very different from us, I pray that your spirit will illuminate and enlighten the cosmic truths, the eternal truths that are here that we need to apply to our lives. Lord, I pray that whatever hardness is in us, whatever skepticism is in us, whatever, um, uh, whatever shields we've got up to defend ourselves from you, to inoculate ourselves from you, Lord, I pray you will break through those in mighty ways today and speak to our hearts and change our lives through the power of your word. It's in the name of your son that we ask it. Amen. So Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, this is impossible to be sure of what's going on in the Hebrew here. That's why it's confusing. We've talked about how dates and even numbers are a real challenge in Samuel's, uh, in the two books of Samuel. Literally, in the Hebrew, this says, and Saul was one year old. That doesn't seem likely to be the literal interpretation of what's going on here, right? I think we would have picked up on that if Saul was an infant. Um, instead, many rabbis, here's some different ideas, many rabbis think this is a euphemism. This is like saying it's raining cats and dogs. It's an idiom. It, it means something like Saul was as innocent as a baby. He was as inexperienced as a child. He was totally in over his head. He didn't know what he was doing. We really don't know for sure, but that's one possibility. Another is that simply a, a, a couple of dots, a little dash, um, literally a single line may have been moved or left out, which would have indicated that Saul was 31 years old, which is kind of the rabbinical belief about how old he was when he took on kingship, and that the three just got lost somewhere in translations across the way. Um, another one is that this was the way of Samuel saying, all of this happened in the first year of Saul's reign but we really don't know. Um, so whenever it is, at some point Saul chooses 3,000 hand-picked people. Um, this may be intended, by the way, to be a critique of Saul. 
Remember, he had a large and motivated army after he defeated Nahash the snake, right? So you remember that. So he defeats, he defeats this powerful enemy. He has a large motivated army. And it may be that the Samuel here is making a little critique saying he should have then immediately gone and taken over Philistia with this big army. He should have invaded Philistia and taken care of these enemies. And instead what he did at the end of the battle was he sent everybody home. And over the next two years, the Philistines who ruled Israel at this time disarmed the Hebrews. And that that's what we're stuck with. So now Saul tries to create an army. He's able to raise 3,000. Now let's, let's look just real quick at, see where it ended up, there it is. Let's look real quick at the map. So we have Michmash right here in the middle. Okay, so you can see that right over here. So Michmash is where Saul goes to gather his armies. And we have some idea of where that is. Um, and Gibeah is down here. So Gibeah is about 10 miles away. And that's where Jonathan is at this point, right here, Gibeah. Now what we read about is that at some point, and this is going to be real challenging to unpack, Samuel reads like a nesting doll, probably. That there's a story within a story within a story within it, but we're doing it in reverse. So you tell the story and then you unpack it, and there's a story about that story in the middle, and you unpack that and there's a story about that story. So what we're reading about here is that while Saul is up here, and Jonathan's down here, Jonathan comes up here to Geba, and he takes out the Philistine garrison there. And that's what's going on. Chapter 14 is about this happening. Um, and so we'll get there when we get to chapter 14 and how it plays out. Um, but again, it's tough for us as Westerners. We don't like stories told that way. That's, that's irritating to us, but that's the way it works. So what happens is they're here and they're here. And then he goes up and takes us out of Gibeah. Well, Philistia is over in this region, over by the coast um, of Israel. And so the Philistines are about to go. Um, you, you can see Saul's got his men there. So Jonathan defeats that. Saul then blows the trumpet through all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard that it was said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, one, and two, that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. So Saul heads over to Gilgal, and probably because he hears the Philistines are rising up. But, but regardless, he says, I'm going to go over to Gilgal and gather an army. Why? Because that's where Hebrews gather armies. It's always been where they gather armies. It's Gilgal. That's where you gather armies if you're a Jew. You gather your armies there in Gilgal. We don't know historically where Gilgal is. This map guesses way over here. I've seen them all over the place. Um, so it may be over here. It's hard to know. But wherever it is, that's where, that's where Saul starts to gather an army. But he has a real problem. We're about to get there. First, Saul moves his 2,000, and he makes a call out to the people of Israel to, give, to prepare to face the Philistines, because the Philistines are mad that their garrison has been wiped out. Again, we'll read in chapter 14, it's much bigger than that. It's an actual significant victory that happens there, and the Philistines are not pleased when he destroyed it. Now, we don't know why in this passage it says that the word got out that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Because Saul wasn't there. It wasn't even Saul's idea. Now some, some commentaries, and I don't know what to do with this for sure. There's a little bit of the buck stops here going on here. He is king. His son did defeat the, the, the garrison, which especially if Saul had said, Jonathan, go take out the garrison at Geba. Well then sure it would be appropriate to say, look at what Saul did. But as it is, it almost comes across as you'll see in chapter 14, like Jonathan said, well dad's not going to do anything, so I'm going to do something. In which case, it is a little weird that Saul gets somehow credit for it. 
doesn't seem to correct it. Many commentaries, again, think this is Saul taking credit where he shouldn't, and this is another dash against his integrity. I don't know what to do with that for sure. But he does. So we'll get this battle unpacked soon. So they, Saul uses the opportunity to call the people of Israel together uh, to fight like they did with Nahash. So he calls the Hebrews, let the Hebrews hear. This is kind of the Jewish version of Avengers assemble, okay? This is, this is everyone, everyone get here, everybody show up, right? This is the on your left moment. The problem is there's no on your left, like 600 guys show up. And that's going to be a problem. Now, why did that happen? I want to comment first on the strength of this. How many of you remember, we talk about the Shema at this church regularly, like at least four times a year, typically. We talk about the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a significant. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the Shema. It is what Jewish people say every morning and every evening. This is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's on their lips and on their minds and in their heart all the time. The Shema. It's fascinating. I mean, Shema means hear. It's this word, hear. Hear, O Israel. And so it, it's interesting. It sounds like Saul is connecting the battle cry of Israel to the Shema. If he came up with that, that's kind of awesome. Um, if he didn't come up with it, whoever did, that's kind of awesome. Whoever connected this, it's not sharpen your weapons. You know, it's not Avengers assemble. It is listen to God. Although Saul may be saying, listen to me or I'm going to slaughter your oxen. That's what he did last time. No, it's hard to, it's hard to know. But it, it's before the Hebrews can hear, much less assemble, verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And look where they went. They came up and encamped at Michmash. So the Philistines, remember, do you remember the Philistines? The Philistines, these are your warlike people. They fight because they like fighting. They kill because they like killing. When they're not killing you, they're killing each other. These were the, they are the descendants of an ancient a um, uh, uh, group of like pirates, marauders, maybe even Vikings would be the best way to understand them. You would show up at a village on the coast and the village would be burned to the ground and every single person dead and the whole village stripped and you would say, oh, the Philistines have been here. They loved to fight. When the Egyptians finally conquered them and suppressed them, they put them in these five cities north of Egypt right next to Israel. Primarily, probably because that meant if you wanted to try to invade Egypt, you had to go through these five towns of people who could not wait to fight with you. They loved this stuff. They couldn't wait to get the opportunity to kill you or be killed by you. They lived for this. And so what's happening here, they are so good at this that they muster up an army and immediately they have a horde of people ready to go fight. This is like Scotsman or Irishman, right? It's like, we want to go fight, and they're like, where? You just say where, and I'll be there, ready to fight. And so they get there, and where do they go? They march straight for where they think Saul's army is. They don't, they don't slow down. There's no, there's no going here or there. It is straight for where Saul's army is. They can't wait for this fight. They're itching for it. They're not afraid of Saul. They're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of his 2,000 men or whatever he's raised. They've just recently seen him raise a massive army and wipe out um, Nahash and his army, and guess what? They don't care. They're ready to go fight. They're itching for it. But it doesn't seem like there's anyone there to greet them when they arrive. Now, I do want to comment on when you read this. In Hebrew writing, 
numbers are really tough, and every commentary references this. Very small dots, a drip of ink, a tiny dot of ink can change a number from, 10, from 1,000 to 30,000. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, and they all comment on the idea that you would have 30,000 chariots and only 6,000 horsemen. That really doesn't make any sense. It makes much more likelihood that it's, that it's meant to be 1,000 chariots or maybe even 300 chariots because um, both those numbers are very similar in Hebrew to the number 30,000 um, because that wasn't their focus. Regardless, it's a large army. And especially when you're up against them with 600, either way, you're kind of in big trouble, right? So the people of Israel, where is Saul's army? Well, any that didn't go with Saul to Gilgal, they see this massive horde of Philistines show up and they go into hiding. They, they dig holes and hide in them. They literally go into graves and cist graves. These are Hebrew people. They don't go around dead bodies. They're hiding in tombs. They're hiding in wells. They're hiding in cisterns, just big holes in the ground meant to hold water. And so they're relatively small. They go into hiding. The locals are there. And where's Saul? Well, he's gone to Gilgal to try to raise an army, probably narrowly avoiding being captured by the Philistines who show up immediately. There are a handful with him. They go to Gilgal to gather their big army. He puts out his battle cry. And so far, no one has come. It may just be there's been no time. And the ones who are with him are trembling. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks, tombs, cisterns. Some even crossed over to the Jordan, the land of Gad and Gilead. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come from Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Okay, let's get that map back up, if we can. Here we go. So like I said, he was in McMash. Here's, down here is where uh, Jonathan is. They take out Geba. The, the Philistines come marching straight into McMash. If this is the correct place for Gilgal or something, whatever it is, so Saul, Saul goes over here. This is about the furthest away Gilgal could be, and that's only about 10 to 15 miles. That's half a day's march for the Philistine army. So here he's in Gilgal with 600 people, and not only are not more people showing up, but the 2,000 he's got has drained down to 600. There's people leaving, not adding. You imagine how nervous Saul is. At any point, a horde of Philistines are going to show up with very little warning, and he has 600 men. He is, he is terrified by this, and he waits under those conditions for seven days. That's impressive. But the problem is, he doesn't wait long enough. Samuel told him to wait seven days, and it doesn't seem that he figure, finishes the full seven days. He panics. His men are starting to lose heart, so he acts rashly. Saul says, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. He offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. To salute him is in the Hebrew here. The language is clearly meant to let us know if Saul had just waited a few more minutes, Samuel was going to show up. If he had been faithful just a few more minutes. How many of us have faced that? If I'd been faithful just a few more minutes, I would have had this way of escape out of the sin in my life. Saul had waited faithfully just a little bit longer. Samuel would have arrived. In fact, it seems based on the language, that this is the seventh day. 
So this isn't the eighth day. He didn't wait the full seven days. Often we give in when we would have, should have waited just a little bit longer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes it's a matter of just hanging on a little longer. So I imagine Saul coming out to meet Samuel. He wants to get ahead of the narrative. He wants to get out there and warn, make sure that Samuel doesn't get some kind of wrong idea, like that Saul had been impatient and had done the sacrifices without him, right? But I think he's probably still got blood on his hands. And he comes out there, and Samuel says, What have you done? What have you done? So I agree with the commentaries that say from all of this, all of this has happened very quickly for Saul. At the longest, you're talking three years. Some commentaries think the correct way of understanding this is just maybe a month. All of this story so far from eight until now has been in a very short amount of time. It's being unpacked like these nesting dolls. Saul says, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, it's funny, the the kind of exaggerated language there, isn't it? I mean, I didn't want to do it. I made myself do it. I had to gut it out and do this thing that I decided to do. Isn't it interesting that he says, I have not yet sought the favor of the Lord? He had the favor of the Lord. All he had to do was obey and to continue obeying. That's all he had to do. By doing these sacrifices out of the time that he had been told by Samuel to do it, he is putting himself in the disfavor of the Lord. He's not hearing the very thing he called Israel to do, Saul is not doing. He is not shmaing. In fact, here's the deal. He's not remembering this. Think about this. Remember just a few chapters ago that the Philistines gathered an army and God defeated the army of Philistia with thunder. By himself, he defeated the armies of Philistia with thunder. And all the people of Israel had to do was to go in and take that ground and take the the plunder from this army that was in disarray because God had thundered, whatever that means, and and defeated them with that. Man, don't you wish that they could have just remembered that a little longer? What they should have done was go to where that happened and put a giant rock in the middle of that field to remind themselves, here's where God rescued us with just thunder. He can do this whenever he wants. Of course, that's exactly what they did do. This this rock was sitting in a field not five miles probably from Michmash. And yet Saul has forgotten that who God is. He goes to God Saul's way, not God's way. And we're going to see this play out with Saul several times, and it's always so destructive. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. Um, For then he would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now this seems pretty harsh. I don't know about you, but this feels like, man, I mean, okay, this is a big deal, but kind of just messed up once. For this, you're ending his dynasty? For this, you're ending the whole kingship? For this, you're going to pick someone else? I mean, I I struggle with that a little bit. And then this came clear to me this week looking at a commentary, and I thought, "This, this begins to make sense. This isn't just some random disobedience. Aside from the fact that Saul is ignoring what Samuel told him to do, 
But here, here's what I want you to see. This kind of chilled me a little when, this, when these pieces came together. Do you remember back, like a couple of chapters, when Saul is being anointed? And when he's being anointed, there's all these evidences, these signs and evidences of Saul's anointing. Do you remember that? Go home and some guys are going to stop you and they're going to have a, you know, bread and wine. They're going to give you some bread. And, and somebody else is going to stop you and they're going to tell you about the whole donkey thing again. And then you're going to find a group of people who are prophesying and you're going to join in with them and you're going to be overcome with the Holy Spirit and you're going to change and you're going to start prophesying. You remember these? All these, these statements? Remember when those happened? Those were part of the anointing? It's a whole series of then, 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 then statements for Saul to confirm you're his anointing. You know what the last one of those then statements is? 1 Samuel, back in chapter 10, verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. This was not just some random disobedience. This was the final stamp of Saul's anointing that Saul disobeys. Saul does not wait. The one thing... Did Saul have to do anything with any of those others? Nope. He just had to accept the bread. Um, he just had to hear the message. He was overcome with the Spirit, so he prophesied. There wasn't a whole lot of like, just obey Saul. Just, and there's one thing Saul has to obey. Wait seven days in Gilgal. It reminded me of like showing up to the DMV with every single paper, bill, and form that you need except one. What happens? You get to go home, Right? They've got a person there just, just specially sitting there to tell you, you get to go home now, right? Go try again. Reschedule in another eight months. Listen to the sad words of a frustrated Samuel in this moment. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah, back to where Jonathan is with his thousand. And whoever they were able to gather, they all go to Gibeah. That's back to Saul's hometown. Saul goes home again, where he always goes when he doesn't know what to do. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600. So, here we go. Let's imagine the numbers were miscopied or smudged, and there should be a thousand chariots and 6,000 horsemen and more soldiers than they can count. Saul has his faithful 600 plus maybe 1,000 more. Nowhere near the numbers they fought with Nahash. Saul takes them home to where Jonathan is apparently waiting. And here's what's wild. Those of you who are warriors, listen to this. The thing that Saul, that rushed Saul into doing the sacrifices never happens. It never happens happens. We see in this passage that what Saul fears does not happen. The Philistines never march on Gilgal. They never do. They encamp in Michmash and they start sending out raiding parties. Well, isn't that just like the enemy? Isn't that just like us? He created a future in his mind that didn't exist and then reacted to a future that was never going to exist in fear. I used to have a friend who would say, don't tell me worry doesn't help. Because 95% of the things I worry about never happen. Let that sink in a little bit, right? I don't think that's how the force works. 
This is, he, he created this future, and rather than wait in obedience, he rushed to face a future that doesn't exist. The rumination, the catastrophic thinking, the anxiety, the worry, the magical thinking that Saul puts into place here. And then he responds in faithlessness about a fear never was going to happen. How like us. I know we love to relate and connect to the heroes in Scripture. But how vital it is that we remind ourselves that we're a whole lot like the flawed people in Scripture too. The failures and, and even the bad guys. That we connect with them and recognize, wow, when I look at my own life and I create this imminent bad thing in the future and then I jump ahead of God and I get out ahead of Him and I, and I take a step, not in faith but in fear, and God's like, I was never going to let that happen. This thing you're trying to keep from happening, it was never going to happen. If you just waited, I had the provision that you needed. So if you will stand with me. And, and here's, I'm going to read a passage here in a second. So we're going to have our time of invitation that we always do, assuming that God's word is working. And if you would like for someone to pray with you in this time of invitation, you'd come up here and one of us would be happy to pray with you, or there'll be people there in the corner who would love to pray with you. Um, if you would like to get to know this God better and put your faith in him in, in some way, come, come talk with us about that. There's a lot of people in the room who would happily do that. And um, we'd love to. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join this dysfunctional family, you can come and let us know that that's the case. And we'd love to introduce you to everybody. Um, whatever it is, whatever the spirit lays on you. But before I read this passage, I want to comment because I've heard this passage taught and I've had many people in my life tell me that they've heard this passage taught as, a, as like an, an angry command from Jesus. And I think that's misunderstanding this passage. I've heard people literally quote this passage and then refer to not doing it <clears throat> as sin. And I don't think that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. I think this is a moment of Jesus comforting us, almost laughing with us. Aren't we hilarious sometimes? Aren't we amazing? Jesus had been experiencing life as a human for 30 plus years. He knew what it was to face these temptations. And I think he's saying, guys, listen, let's reason together. So when you hear this, I don't want you to walk away going, oh no, I'm so bad at this. I'd rather you kind of smile at yourself and go, wow, I'm really bad at this. Let me delight in the Lord and rest in the truth of who he is and what he's saying here. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The very word of God.